Oh, wow. I have just had the most incredible chat with Dr. Kate Shanahan. I mean, I know a lot about the uh, hateful eight, these seed oils that we're consuming on a daily basis. But what I didn't know is they exacerbate menopause symptoms. If you cut them out your diet, you can have far less hot flushes. You'll definitely lose weight. Your mental health will increase. Your risk of type 2 diabetes will be diminished. And do you know what else? You can actually grow taller. What? I mean, this is phenomenal stuff. It's all science-backed. The woman is incredible. And she just literally puts to bed why I have cut these oils out of my diet. They actually give you wrinkles. I mean, well, listen on. You'll hear everything. It's a fascinating chat. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Davinia Taylor, and welcome to Hack Your Health a podcast which can support a fast track to feeling your best, boosting your mood and uplifting your general outlook on life. My biohacking journey began over eight years ago, which led me to having a ridiculously inquiring mind, always asking questions and searching for the answers. For example, why do I sometimes lose focus and what makes me sign up to a marathon at 45? Or one of my first ever questions, What the hell makes me so allergic to alcohol that I can't ever drink again? And how do I manage that? After all, what is addiction and how can it be tamed? Over the years, I've done tons of research and become my own N of one experiment, trying and testing some of the most out there and fringe hypotheses to find out what actually works for me. Me being an average middle-aged British woman with the usual ups and downs of 21st century living. And now I want to share with you what I've learned. I'll be joined by some of the best visionaries in the health and biohacking space, asking them to put forward their arguments and suggestions that could support your health and well-being. As with everything, there is never a one-size-fits-all approach. So I ask you, take these conversations as food for thought. The advice you hear should never be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. But whatever you do, stay inquisitive. And as always, I love your feedback and your experience about what we talk about. Now let's go and hack your health. Well, hello, and I am so excited to welcome one of my all-time heroes to the show. She is a family physician, a biochemist, and author of Deep Nutrition. Her most recent book, the New York Times bestseller, Fat Burn Fix, will help you boost energy, end hunger, and lose weight. Her expertise is fixing the underlying problems that cause metabolic damage and inflammation, leading to autoimmunity, weight gain, diabetes, cancer, and accelerated aging. Her passion is helping people feel their best. Dr. Kate Shanahan, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much for inviting me, Davinia. I just want to give people a bit of background, right? I wrote a book called It's Not a Diet and you feature so heavily in there because when I read your book, Deep Nutrition, which you co-wrote with your husband, and by the way, it's such an easy, easy read, my mind was blown and it was just one of those aha moments for me. Can you just give us a bit of an intro into what Deep Nutrition is about? Deep Nutrition is meant to be like, people call it the nutrition Bible. Like if you want to get a solid ground on the way people used to nourish themselves. Like, how did we get here? Why are things so messed up? Why is the science of nutrition so confusing? It really shouldn't be. It should be very simple. And we make it simple. It used to be very simple. People used to simply nourish themselves 
self-sustainably from the environment, like self-sufficiently and sustainably uh, from the environment. And we've thought about food differently, completely differently. You know, when we talk about food today, it all gets all sciencey really quick. People start talking about saturated fat and macros and calories. But the way people always used to talk about it was healthy soil, well-fed animal, delicious soup. <laughs> so can we just start with the basics then? I mean, fats, there's a huge movement to eat in like ketogenically or cutting out carbohydrates. I mean, it's all very complicated, but let's just start on that one nutrient, fat. And this is what blew my mind about there are different types of fat, aren't there? Yes, absolutely. And so, you know, the, the fats that people used to eat mostly came from animals and then because most plants do not have a lot of fat. So what kind of fat is in animals? If we want to talk the science about like, you know, the terms of the fat, the saturated versus the monounsaturated and the polyunsaturated, those are the three big families of fat. But the kinds that are in animals are the saturated fat mostly and monounsaturated. And those are the kinds that the American Heart Association, who in this country completely run the nutrition conversation, the American Heart Association, they educate doctors. And those saturated and monounsaturated fats or saturated fat that comes from animal products more so than from plant fats, the American Heart Association claims and has claimed for decades that these clog our arteries and cause arteriosclerosis. That's the plaque that builds up in your arteries and can cause a heart attack or can cause a stroke. They also say that it causes cancer and they say that it causes like everything bad. But when you look at the big picture, these are things that people had been eating for thousands of years, right? Because like I just said, in deep nutrition, we point out that people always ate animals, right? Why would they suddenly be bad for us? Because we didn't have these epidemics of heart attacks, strokes, obesity, cancer, when we were eating that way. So what do you think's changed? Because you just mentioned uh, disease, you know, and all of a sudden, well, one in two people are likely to get cancer. I mean, heart disease is on the constant increase. What has changed in our diet for that to take a monumental pandemic leap? So the food that we are eating now that is making us sick is these, it's a collection of industrially processed oils that I call the hateful eight, because there are eight of them. One of them is, um, I understand you were just telling me that you grow commonly there, it's called rapeseed. In this country, we call it canola oil. Another one is soy oil. But there are, there's a total of eight, and they are all bad for us for the same reason. Okay, can you explain? Because I obviously born in the 70s, brought up in the 80s, and I remember my mom giving me margarine, and we always had skim milk. So it was always deemed it's the healthier option to have polyunsaturated, heart-healthy margarine instead of butter. And everybody had it in the house, and it was spreadable. So you could get it out the fridge and it would spread. So <laughs> what makes it so different from butter? So yeah, so it was, who was deeming it, right? Who was saying this stuff is so healthy? It's the American Heart Association, the same people that were saying that saturated fat is unhealthy. And the American Heart Association 
is funded by companies that sell these hateful eight seed oils. Is it that simple? Is it really boils down to the dollar? It really, truly does. I mean, you can make it a lot more complicated than that, but conflicts of interest basically run business and medicine is now a business more so than a science. So the, uh, these are the things that are making us sick. They were not in our food supply before the industrial era. I mean, you know, in the 1800s and 1900s when factories started running, uh, you know, people started making everything in factories, as many things as they possibly could in factories. Well, we started making our food in factories too. And these seed oils come from factories. They were never in our diet. And so that just right there, it means that these things need to be the first that we will consider as a society as, wait a second, these are the new things. And now we're sick. We should take a close look at this because we're eating a whole heck of a lot of them. And that's another thing that a lot of people don't realize is just how much of these hateful eight oils we are collectively eating on any given day and throughout the year. So just circling back, you said they were made in factories. I mean, I read somewhere that they were actually used to lubricate and clean machinery as you would. I mean, I, I liken it to waterproof mascara remover. It's like an oil, isn't it? It gets rid of like oil-based paints. You know, it's, it's a detergent, isn't it? Yes, actually. Uh, so Procter & Gamble, they are the company that donated $1.7 million to the American Heart Association in 1948. And that's what got them started. So $1.4 million back in the 40s, probably a couple of billion by now, right? <laughs> yes. Wow. Procter & Gamble turned cottonseed oil into soap and candles. So that's what you know, you're absolutely right. It's a detergent. You know, you can turn it into soap. You can turn it into candles. And so they uh, also learned how to turn it into Crisco and, you know, oil that you would cook with. But they sponsored the American Heart Association with all that money. And that completely uh, changed the nature of the American Heart Association from a beneficent organization run by doctors who were concerned about heart disease and what really causes it. And then it just turned into a business where they just want to keep getting more industry money and they support the disinformation around nutrition with, they use that money to generate disinformation around nutrition. And they do that by publishing 13 different medical journals so they've got like the uh, American College of Cardiology, they've got uh, thrombosis, they've got one about stroke, they've got 13 different medical journals, and they run the nutrition conversation because they're constantly pumping out journals, and they're associated with Harvard. The American Heart Association has many, many people going back and forth from Harvard. They've got Harvard medical doctors on their board, and in this country, Harvard is, I guess, like Cambridge or Oxford over there. Like nobody questions their authority. No. They don't question their authority and they are misusing their authority and they're misusing the public trust that they have gained from their authority. And, you know, it's a good institution in other areas, but when it comes to nutrition, they are killing us. Harvard is killing us with this idea that seed oils are healthy and saturated fat 
is the enemy. Okay, so just explain the... I mean, when you've got saturated fat from an animal, it's pretty obvious how you get it from the animal. You know, it's just underneath the skin and you fry it and it tastes great and you have bacon and I love bacon and eggs and I, I love it, love it, love it. Can you just explain the process involved with, say, canola oil, or as we call it, rapeseed oil? What is the process that differs so much from animal fat? Yeah, so it's an oil refinery process. So uh, if you've got oil refineries over there, you know, there's like pipes and smoke coming out of them and it usually stinks and many, <laughs> many buildings with interconnected metal pipes and trucks pulling up and doesn't look like the place that you would want to sit down and, you know, oh, let's go over here and have a nice meal. <laughs> it's very futuristic, isn't it? It's not a farm. It's the opposite yeah. of a farm. <laughs> it, so just painting that picture of it is it is an oil refinery. It looks like an oil and gas refinery and it has the same exact technology, almost exact. The one difference is the extraction. So you don't, you extract the oil and gas from the ground. Well, here you extract it from the seeds. And that is a whole multiple series of steps in and of itself that use heat and pressure. And you get something out of that. It, I'm talking about heats and pressures that absolutely mangle these molecules at a chemical level. You wouldn't want to do this to like your skin. You would burn yourself. It's just, it is not something that life can sustain its way through. And so what it does is it kills all of the nutrition that was in there. You know, it oxidizes the uh, antioxidants and many of the vitamins are just damaged and things start to mangle and combine with each other in a horrible way. Just like that black stuff that forms on the bottom of your oven. You haven't cleaned it in a while and you've had drippings yep. of things have oh, combined yeah. I'm with guilty, very guilty of that. <laughs> I hate cleaning the oven. It's just, it's a whole day of a job. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of like what this looks like in solution. And the people in the industry, in the edible oil industry, they call this crude vegetable oil extract. They themselves, this is inedible. Like you, you don't want to eat it. It will kill cows. Like if they, it will kill animals. If you feed the crude oil to them, you can't say that about, you know, butter or cream or animal fat or any of the traditional oils like olive oil that people used to use or coconut oil. It doesn't kill people. Like it's not deadly, right? So, and that's, that's just the crude oil. And then it has to go through at least 40 other series of steps that are called bleaching, deodorizing, degumming, de-waxing, right? They got to get all this toxic stuff out. And each type of toxin is gum or wax or has dark color. So it needs to be bleached. And so, so that's why it gets so extensively, extensively processed because there's so many different types of toxins that need to be removed or it will kill people. Like it will be inedible. It will be, have a strong, strong flavor. So by the time it's done, it's cleaned up. It's not good for you. It still has some toxins in there. It has some trans fats in there, but most of the toxins are removed. Although there is absolutely no nutritional value. I know they claim that soy oil, for example, has some vitamin E. I don't think so. I think that vitamin E has been oxidized Long and gone. mangled. Yeah. Long gone. So just to be clear, so say sunflower oil, which we I see in every time I turn a packet of something over, I see sunflower oil in it. I want to talk about why it's in there soon. But say a sunflower seed in its entirety, that is not the problem. It's not the sunflower per se. It's the process it goes through to then become sunflower oil. Right. Because the processing changes these things chemically. And 
everything that nature makes just about is designed to nourish something, right? Plants, it's true that plants have some anti-nutrients in us to protect their stuff and plants do have some toxins to protect their stuff, but it's minute amounts compared to what happens when you go through the process of the seed oils, right? Uh, of, of all the processing that just mangles the molecules and creates new structural molecules that just don't exist in nature. And uh, so they have some names, like there's toxic aldehydes. One of them is called croton aldehyde. That is the same exact toxin you find in cigarette smoke. So actually, I should clarify, when you cook foods in the seed oils, right? So straight out of the factory, yeah. you don't have which, all Which you do. Yeah, right, of course. But straight out of the factory, like they don't have quite as many toxins as they do once you cook with them. Okay. So, so not only are they bad when they come out the factory, you then cook with them as you're meant to and do your, um, your chips in them or your, whatever you're frying in them, your egg, and all of a sudden it gets even worse? Much worse. Um, yes. So this is where it really goes crazy. Like the number of toxins, it just literally explodes. These are slow motion explosion reactions that actually are causing these toxins to form. And when the toxicologists study the different, you know, what is the toxin in the food that's been cooked in seed oils, in the French fries, or you call it chips, um, <laughs> they, they find that there are dozens and dozens of categories. So there are literally, not in, I'm not talking about in, in the amount yet, I'm talking about the number of different types of toxins, probably hundreds, hundreds. Wow. Just in one solitary chip. <laughs> yes. And, and just one of the types of toxins that's been measured um, is present in such high amounts that a single serving, five ounces or about 25, uh, what you would call chips, we call French fries, that has amounts of some of these toxins that exceed the WHO uh, organization on health and food safety threshold by a factor of like five or 10 for just that one serving for the day, like exceed the safety threshold. Like you will have problems if you exceed this safety threshold. And when you eat chips, you are exceeding it by a fact, not just, you're not just a little bit bump over it. It's five times, 10 times. So, I mean, I'm flabbergasted by that. So why on earth have they not done any press on it? Because you'd think that is such a hook for somebody to sell more expensive oil. I mean, why is there no press on it? I mean, everyone should be screaming from the rooftops about this, like WHO, because they like to shout and tell us what to do, don't they? <laughs> well, I think the real problem is that the authority, the American Heart Association and Harvard, you know, they're kind of linked together. The American Heart Association couldn't survive without Harvard. And Harvard uses all the money that American Heart Association has to do their so-called studies. So those folks are... It's a circular economy. Yeah. And they're seen by journalists as a valid source of information, right? So the, the journalists, you know, are trusting that this institution, like, deserves the credibility that it has, they just don't understand. That's why I always talk about like the history of the American Heart Association. It was founded by a company that sells seed oil. So you need to know that to really understand 
the history of a modern nutrition science. It's modern nutrition science completely reinvented itself. It, uh, we had a lot better nutrition science in the 1930s and 1940s before modern nutrition science came along and reinvented everything. It threw away all of the knowledge that we had because when you say saturated fat is bad, you take away animals. And when you take away animals, you don't have a normal diet anymore. You have a vegan or vegetarian diet, or maybe some you get to throw in some fish sometimes or some poultry sometimes. That is not how people in this country used to feed themselves. We had pigs, we had cows, we had sheep, and I'm pretty sure it's the same over there since we, you, our country came from your country. Yeah. So we had animals. They're essential to a small family farm. And that's what this country was founded by people who ran small family farms. But you obliterate the small family farmer when you say, no, animals are unhealthy. Now, you, you can raise them, but, you know, people aren't going to want to pay much because they're unhealthy. Yeah, I mean, I eat a lot of meat. I've got four boys. We have meat every day and we try and have it as grass fed as possible, you know. Um, and I really don't, I, I bloat with a veg diet. I really do. I don't get excited by it. I don't, you know, but any, anyway, that's my personal view. Now tell me, just, can you give me some understanding as to why in every single processed food do I see these oils? Why are they so useful for big food? Oh, they are so useful for so many reasons. Big food could not exist without the edible oil industry, which sells seed oils. That's what they call themselves, the edible oil industry, which is a funny term because they are truly edible, but they're not like food, really. shouldn't be, you can eat it. <laughs> you shouldn't. And the reason, there's many reasons. Uh, so like, let's just start with the fact that they don't have a flavor. So that means that you can interchange them. All hateful eight of them have the same exact non-flavor. So if you're a massive company and you need to have food, you know, be that you're producing year round and Canada grows canola and Brazil grows soy or corn and China grows corn and soy and Africa grows like safflower or something, you have all these sources now. If if one of your supply lines goes down, you have so many backup plans. So that's one big reason. It's just that they're all identical. And the other reason is you, ha you have to understand the scale of these multinational corporations. They don't order bottles of vegetable oil or soy oil. They order trucks, tankers, like they order shipments of trains with multiple train cars. And they keep the food that they're making in freezers that are a mile long. So these are people that just need a massive amount of this stuff. And if they had to just imagine if they had if it was butter, you have to keep butter cold. If, if oh, it's super had, expensive, yeah. yeah, chilling and refrigerating. So they can absolutely not use a product that needs to be chilled or refrigerated because it'll separate, it'll melt, it'll just get gross, it'll change, and it'll get moldy because... Lo and behold, it's natural. <laughs> it's natural. Yes, life can exist on it. But canola, corn, cottonseed, soy, sunflower, safflower, rice bran, and uh, grapeseed, those are the hateful eight. 
those do not support life. In fact, not only you brought up that they're used as engine lubricants, they're used as pesticides. They're also used as antifungals because they don't support life. There's nothing nutritious in there. And the type of fatty acid that they have is not the kind that life likes to subsist on in terms of using it for energy or getting very much of it at all. So there's so many um, reasons that the getting back to the why does big food rely on them? Like it's about the volume and the simplicity and the interchangeability and the preserve the natural preservative effect. And that's like why they want to use them. They're also like byproducts of other industries. So getting back to Procter and Gamble and their candles and detergents and ultimately Crisco and cottonseed oil, cotton seeds are a byproduct of guess what industry? <laughs> cotton industry. Textiles, right? So Huge. it's free. Huge, it was yeah. free. There were piles of cotton seeds laying, uh, you know, outside the processing uh, factories where they extract, they got the cotton off and the seeds were just sitting there rotting. And so, you know, business people are opportunists. They're like, hmm. I wonder what that cotton seed can do for me. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. and rice bran is the same idea. Rice bran is a byproduct of the white rice industry. <laughs> Okay. So, I mean, it's, it is, it's, it's, a, it's just another income, isn't it? Basically. So yeah. for the agricultural industry, it's yet another income stream. And then of course, with it preserving foods and fast foods and having, I suppose, it, a crispy effect, it's got to do something to do with mouthfeel. It has to be, it's a fatty, crispy thing that you, you get yeah. addicted to this stuff, don't you? And if it's cheap and it's addictive, oh my God, my product's going to sell. <laughs> Right. Yes, exactly. Like our minds kind of register it as fat, even, I mean, it is fat. It's just not the kind of fat that we need in our diets in such massive amounts. We do need a tiny bit of it. And that's another thing that the American Heart Association and everybody get like gets you confused about. They say that they, they have this term essential fatty acids, meaning they sound like they're something that we need. And it's true. They are something that we need, but we also need vitamin D, but we don't need, uh, you know, like a tub of it every day. We just need a dot, a tiny little dot. And if you have too much, it's going to have toxic effects. And it turns out that these have a multitude of toxic effects when you consume them in the amounts that we are now consuming, according to the research that I've done. Right. So like this is stuff that I've gone out and asked many questions about how are these things affecting our bodies. And they're, we've so far focused mostly on the fact that when you cook with them, they actually turn molecularly into toxic compounds that didn't exist in the seed. And these toxic compounds have, you know, devastating effects on our health. But also just the simple imbalance of the kind of fatty acid that they contain that we are consuming in amounts that maybe they should represent maybe 1% of our daily calories. And the average person in this country is getting at least 10% of their daily calories from these, these fatty acids. One or 2% is what it should be. And, and we're getting maybe 10, 20, and some people 30%. And so that in itself has a whole different host of health effects. And, and that's what I wrote 
about in the fat burn fix. So tell me some of the consequences of, well, I mean, obviously what we're all doing and what we've all been raised on, this misinformation about having um, the saturated fat as demonized and the polyunsaturated fat as a hero product. What has been the impact on our health as a population? So in one word, it accelerates the aging process. So, you know, what is it that ages us? What is we don't think about, um, we actually breathe toxin every day. Oxygen, oxygen, we need it. We need it for energy, but it has toxic effects. And it does this thing called oxidize. If you've seen metal rust, that's oxygen attacking the metal. Well, oxygen attacks our tissues too. And when we have all these toxins from the seed oils and the types of fatty acids in the seed oils, it makes our tissues so susceptible to oxygen damage that things start breaking down. Our cells do not work properly. We lose receptiveness to normal hormones like estrogen and testosterone and insulin. And it changes our DNA and it, it literally kind of oxidizes our connective tissue. And so it's, it's accelerating the aging process. So would it give you wrinkles? This stuff gives you wrinkles? Totally. Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, the fat that you eat goes under your skin. And when uh, you, if you get sunburned a lot, then these things are damaged by the sun's rays, by the UV. They're easily damaged. They're damaged by oxygen and they're damaged ah. by um, UV as well. So, I mean, I did read something about um, these oils actually making sunburn more likely. So you, you literally lose the ability to go brown and protect yourself from the sun in summer because you've had overconsumption of these oils and you end up burning and peeling. And obviously you get yourself into trouble then. So we have a huge increase in skin cancer, even though there's SPF everywhere. Is it because it's the root cause the seed oil? I believe that has a lot to do with it. It's probably at least 80 or 90% of it. And there's other factors in disease. Um, you know, what, disease is caused by two things, toxins and nutritional deficits, right? So nutritional deficits is what used to kill us, right? You can get cancer from nutritional deficit. You can get arteriosclerosis from nutritional deficit. That's what used to kill us. But now that we have so much toxin, all of this happens in greater amount and happens faster. So we get a lot more cancer. We get a lot more autoimmune. We get diseases that didn't exist 100 years ago. Type 2 diabetes was exceedingly rare, exceedingly rare. Like people are theorizing that it may have actually existed, but it wasn't really well characterized at all until 1938. It wasn't like happening enough. Heart attacks were exceedingly rare. It was so rare. You could be a doctor specializing in diseases of the heart and go your entire career in 1920 and never see a heart attack. Oh my goodness, the ten a penny now. They really are ten a penny. I know it's one of the biggest killers, right? It really is. Yes, yes. And you believe that's got a direct correlation with the use of these seed oils systemically throughout society? No question it's the seed oils because when you look at the amount of these different diseases that are starting to occur in the populations, 
it completely correlates in each different population that you look at with the amount of seed oil the population is consuming. So we kind of led the way in this country. So that's why we, for a long time, we were the ones having more heart attacks and more obesity and more cancer. But everywhere seed oils have gone, you see the correlation between the seed oil consumption in that population and now more disease. And so India. They did not used to, about 20 years ago, there was almost no um, seed oils other than traditionally produced, artisanally produced mustard seed oil, which is, uh, they didn't use very much of it. But then suddenly corn and soy were everywhere. And now Southeast Asia is just as every bit as unhealthy as, as Western societies even at a lower weight, even though they're not all as overweight as we are in this country, they still have the same rates of heart attacks and diabetes, and they're getting cancers now at an increasing rate. So this kind of argument that I make about, it's all based on correlation, right? So correlation is not causation, people say. But you absolutely, here's one thing that they don't talk about. If you don't have a correlation, you can't have causation. And we've been eating less animal fat as we've been getting sicker. So how is it that the conversation keeps going beyond that, right? You, you need, if we've been eating less, you need a correlation. You need to have a correlation to even consider whether there's causation. Without a correlation, which there is none, right? The amount of butter in this country consumed per person per capita in America went down from 12 pounds per person on average to less than three in the past hundred years. And the amount of beef has gone down. We've been eating a lot more chicken and fish. Yeah. Yeah. White meat. White meat's better for you. But of course, it's not nutrient dense, is it? Okay. So what I'd love to chat about now, we know we should not be eating these foods. We should be able to read a label and just remind us of the hateful eight again. So we know what to look for on, on an ingredients list, because that is where the, the devil's in the detail, right? What are the hateful eight again? On an ingredients list, you're going to see three C's and three S's. So memorize these. So it's corn, canola, cottonseed, and it may be listed as rapeseed over there, I guess you're saying. So it's not going to be three C's. So three, <laughs> two C's and an R. And then three S's, soy, sunflower, safflower. Those are the ones of the hateful eight. Those are the six you're going to see most often on an ingredients list. The other two, at least in this country, are mostly in restaurants. They are making their way onto ingredients. So those other two are rice bran and grapeseed. And those are the eight that I tell everybody to memorize because when you go out to eat, you want to know, you know, what are they cooking with? And if they come back with rice bran, you, you need to know, okay, all right, so I need to request, can you cook this in butter instead of your rice bran? Okay, right, great. So can you tell us what we can have and we shouldn't be scared of? So please elaborate on, you've got uh, in your book, you talk about the four pillars of health and nutrition. Can you elaborate on that for us, please? Yeah, so, okay, so starting with the fat question first, the healthy fats are just traditional fats like butter and animal fat and, you know, the, the vegetable fats that people have consumed for so long that they are built into traditional recipes. So I'm talking about things like coconut oil and peanut oil even, and even sesame oil, even though it's a seed, the way it's produced is healthier and it's been cultivated in for so many years, thousands of years, that it is meant to be used as an oil now. It's easier to use as you don't have to do crazy refining. So it doesn't turn okay. toxic. 
So that's fine. So that's Japan sorted. I can have my little Japanese sort of like <laughs> picky bits because I, I love sesame oil because it's really pungent and you don't have to cook it at high heats, do you really? You just dip some tuna in it. It's really nice. Yeah. And you can add it to like a stir fry at the end, you know, exactly. if you want. To. Yeah. So then you're asking about the four pillars of the human diet. So this I described in Deep Nutrition, which is the first book that I wrote with my husband, um, who is a fantastic writer. So what we did was we wanted to kind of turn back the clock on the whole nutrition philosophy. At the beginning of your show, I, I was talking about how we knew a lot more about nutrition before 1948 and the American Heart Association came along and obliterated all our knowledge. So what we wanted to do is kind of turn back the clock. And we realized that, um, I, I realized by reading old medical books and old cookbooks, that doctors really had a lot of respect for chefs and for people who knew how to cook and for farmers. <laughs> so there was something to be said for traditional cuisine. And, and that's, that's what the old medical books would talk about. They would talk about like home recipes and home cooked remedies, you know, like soups and healing foods. So what my husband and I did was we said, well, let's take a look at all of these cultures where people are healthy and still, you know, living into a ripe old age with no medications and being so unbelievably active. They don't need to see doctors, stuff like that. What do they all have in common? Because maybe there's nothing. But if we did find that there were things that they all shared in common, when gosh darn, those things are probably really important and we should talk about them. So that's what we did. We analyzed like the traditional cuisines of as many different places as we could kind of understand what they ate. So this includes everywhere with China and um, England and Scotland and France and Germany and uh, Hawaii, where I was living at the time that we wrote the book, you know, everywhere, you name it. Um, so every place, every continent and every country has a traditional cuisine. They all share these four things in common that we discovered that we call the four pillars of the human diet. And what they really are is strategies for extracting the most nutrition from your environment. So the four things are fresh food, because people would eat fresh food, they wouldn't cook it, then fermented and sprouted food. When you had too much fresh food and you wanted to preserve it, well, what are you gonna do? You don't have a refrigerator or a freezer, you ferment it. Or if you have like seeds or grains and you can't like boil them and you don't have a mill, you sprout them. That enhances the nutritional value. So that's one pillar because it's uh, kind of like working with nature to enhance nutrition. The third I call meat on the bone because I want to emphasize the fact that not only are we eating the flesh, you know, like the steaks and the fillets and what we call the prime cuts these days, people would eat all of it. They would include the bones and they would make soups. Soups Bone are broth. such an amazing commonality in all cultures. They have lots and lots of soups. So easy to do. You just need a big pot over a open fire and you throw in bones and skin and any edible part you're going to throw in there and you get not only do you get the benefits of the protein and the meat you get a very special set of nutrients from the connective tissue you're throwing in the, the bone and the ligaments and, and skin and stuff that gelatinize so that's really a key um it's like a missing food group in this country I mean, how does that impact your body, you know, having this sort of bone broth frequently? I mean, I know 
I mean, we've got this thing about when you really have chicken soup, but it's not from Heinz, is it? I mean, it's really not Heinz chicken soup. <laughs> they, what they mean is like two, three generations ago, chicken soup, that stuff's going to get you good. Not the stuff that we get in the supermarket in a can. What is so beneficial about that little food group of connective tissue, collagen and gelatin? What is it? Yeah, so it's the ability that it has to help our body grow our own connective tissue. It's like miracle grow for your skin and your joints and your ligaments and even things like your arteries, which are made out of connective tissue and your gut, which is made out of collagen, connective tissue. So it's like a signaling molecule. It sort of tells your body to, you know, make more. Yes, exactly. That is, it's like a hormone in that sense. Hormones are also wow. signaling molecules. So it yeah. has this hormone-like effect and it tells your body to make collagen. And so, you know, if you've uh, ever seen ads for like skin creams or collagen injections, everybody's running around trying to get this collagen back into their bodies because they took it out of their diets. <laughs> right, which makes me just think, just boil some bones. It's a lot cheaper, right? <laughs> <laughs> it is. It takes time, but gosh, it is so delicious. When you add it to, you know, your soups, it's going to be so much tastier and you can use it as a base to, and even if you're just making something like rice or boiling beans or something, you can do it in the stock and it's so much richer. And it'll take on the nutrients. It'll th so the rice takes, because I, I boil my boys rice in bone broth, so it doesn't taste too strong, but I'm hoping the rice has become more nutrient dense for my little pickers. So that's what I'm hoping. Yeah, absolutely. It is. It's protein too. It's not just carb anymore. It's also going to have protein in there. It's more complicated. Okay. And then the final pillar that you recommend is your organ meats. Now people will go, what? What do you mean organ meats? A, they're gross and we just throw them away, don't we? They go to landfill or they go in like pet food. Can you tell me why they're so nutrient dense and how we're missing a trick? Yeah. So for example, liver, um, liver is got a lot of protein in there. Yeah, sure. Like muscle meat does, but what muscle meat doesn't have that liver has is a whole ton of vitamins. So we talk about the liver the wrong way these days. We talk about it like it's like this detoxifier. It's full of toxins. The liver is like the savings bank of the body, um, in terms of vitamins and minerals. It's the first place that when you digest your food, it comes through the wall of your digestive system and it travels up to your liver. And the liver, it's the role of the liver is to distribute it, right? Uh, but it also stores a whole heck of a lot of it. So when you're only eating muscle, you're not getting the full spectrum of vitamins and minerals. And not even just that, it's different types of fats, right? So people now are getting all kinds of supplements of things like choline and lecithin and creatine and stuff like this. If you just eat liver, you get all of that. So it has different types of fat type of nutrients as well, not just things that we think of as vitamins and minerals. And that's just the liver. So every different organ has kind of like a different spectrum of nutrients that it specializes in storing more of. And so if you're missing out on all of those different rainbows of nutrients and you're only eating the meat, the flesh, you're nutritionally deprived. You can't really get enough nutrition unless you supplement um, or unless you're very, very, very meticulous about your diet and you know have a whole lot of high nutrient intensity other foods that you get. Like plants can be great sources of vitamins and minerals, 
there are some plant superfoods, like um, some spices are like just spices and herbs are intensely nutritious. Just that we eat them in such tiny amounts, unless we live in India, we eat them by the pound. But, uh, you know, so like we, we really, really get so many benefits from these organ meats. So the only problem is that we have not continued the knowledge of how on earth do you make them? What do you do with them? In very many places. Now, in Scotland, they have this thing called haggis. And like, I, I know there's all different recipes for it, but I guess one of the most traditional is just lung, right? It's like they mix lung with oats and it's like this fluffy, meaty oatmeal thing. I mean, I don't tell the kids what it is because they're, you know, what, I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? Um, another trick that I do is uh, if I do spaghetti bolognese, I'll chop some liver into it and sort of like spike the mints with it. And so far, no one's noticed. Nice. No one said anything. So I've been I've been sneaking it in. But I mean, it is tricky. It's tricky to do because they're strong tastes, aren't they? Our palates have just become so beige. It's ridiculous. We are beige. No, it's really true. It's exactly, exactly. Like, I mean, so many children these days are like, I hear this from parents all the time. All my child wants to eat is like those goldfish crackers and chicken nuggets and, you know, juice. Because literally their palate has never learned to interpret all of that flavor as something good. Like it, it's it's a, our taste and, uh, you know, that the part of our brain that interprets flavors has to learn that these things, it has to learn. It's a learning system, just like our eyes. Like we don't wake up with perfect vision. Uh, you know, all of our brain has to develop. And the part of our brain that's so underdeveloped these days in young children is the taste, the tongue, because the parents just don't have the time to do what it takes to get a child to eat something that's actually healthy. So they're just always on the go. So they just feed them crackers. And that is all that the child really can interpret their their taste is all just it's kind of like if you only grew up in the dark your your vision would not be very good right or if you grew up where it was all black and white well you wouldn't see color right you would just your brain would not develop the ability to see color and that's what the palette is like in the younger children today which is makes it so doubly triply hard now on parents because now, if they decide they want to eat healthy themselves, well, either they have to cook different foods for the other kids or they have to fight. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of fighting that goes on. Yeah, <laughs> there's too much, yes. But the brain is always learning. So it's not like it's the end of the road. Like you can turn the lights on and start to see in color when it comes to food. You can train a child's palate to understand actual nutrition and give them real food. But it takes the same amount of patience uh, that it takes when you're feeding an infant food for the first time. You don't feed an infant like the first when you're weaning your child from, you know, breast milk or if you feed them formula, you don't start out like with a plate of eggs, you know, or, or like a bowl of mashed pears you give them literally a spoon, <laughs> you know, the first few times. And they say it takes like 10 to 12 times to introduce a new food at that tiny minute amount before the child will accept it. What is that acceptance? What is that acceptance of the food? That is that child's brain now understanding that this thing has nutrients in it and that it is good, <laughs> that it tastes good. That's a child has to learn that food tastes good. Interesting. Um, it's good to know that you can always 
try again. You know, it's not the end of the road. Your kid will adapt, I'm sure. And as they get older, I'm sure they want to feel more energy, more focused. And when they're coming into exam season, it's kind of like, okay, you need brain food, kid. Otherwise, you're going to fail. So let's just get some liver down you for the love of God. Okay, I just wanted to understand that you say that fat, body fat is an organ and we should treat it with respect. What is the body's body fat there to do? It is there to be our go-to source of energy. Body fat is there to energize us and it feeds all of our cells with the most powerful fuel that nature has designed to energize our cells, to use to energize our cells. So it's not glucose then, because obviously you always think before you have a, a race, you have a, a, a run or something, you need glucose, you need carbohydrates, you need to carb load, which I remember something from back in the 90s before you did an exercise class, you'd carb load and you'd feel really bloated and tired. So where's that misinformation come from? Well, it's the same idea. So it, really, that's from um, Gatorade Nutrition Sports Science Institute and Coke. That they fund the sports dietitians, Coca-Cola company, selling soda. So they they need to, you know, have little different venues to sell their different sugary products. And unfortunately, uh, it's become the athletic world that's been the biggest venue for selling sugar. And so, sports nutrition science is is some of the most corrupted and wrong-headed you know, dangerous kind of advice. And that's why when I was working with the Los Angeles Lakers, uh, you know, we completely revolutionized their nutrition program. And the guys who did it, like on their own, as well as where we were feeding them, and they had no choice, they could not believe how much better they felt in their performance uh, would was so much improved their levels of inflammation in their body is like dropped to nothing, their recovery would had improved and you know it was just how about injury how was injury did that go down too well we weren't there long enough so injury is kind of uh, a different thing so but the recovery from injury right injury you're injury prone if your tissues are weak right so say you have weaker bones than you should which many of them were not eating dairy because dairy is supposedly fattening. Um, and so they had weaker bones. So they were always breaking their bones, right? So, you know, if I had been there for 10 years and they had stayed on the same team for 10 years, right? Cause they're always changing. Then they would have less injuries. <laughs> that would have been a really good investment for the Lakers owners to really get you on board <laughs> and try and keep Well, for all of sports, all teams, you know, they, they, they um, don't, really emphasize they don't you know understand the power of nutrition because they they learn the wrong things are healthy and it doesn't make them feel good so they don't believe nutrition helps them at all so it's really a series of vicious cycles that trap people in this way of eating that we currently have which is completely unhealthy promotes disease accelerates aging and you know makes us fat and and the more that you know now we're talking more about the link between diet and mental disorder. So it's it's making us cognitively impaired and emotionally fragile. I just also wanted to just quickly touch on before you got to go, um, menopause. How does this inflammatory oil do a disservice to women who are already fighting wavering hormones? Menopause with seed oils is miserable. Menopause without seed oils is mild or like a blip in your life. Wow. And I can say this with like experience because myself personally, like I, I went through menopause and 
uh, you know, I'm old now. I'm like 55, something like that. And, you know, so it was five, six years ago and I never had daytime hot flashes. I had some nighttime hot flashes, but um, they, they, you know, they were mild. And the other experience I have is working in Hawaii where people did not have seed oils, um, right? So many of my patients had a completely traditional diet and those people, menopause was like, Oh, well, one day I just didn't get my period. That is what menopause is supposed to be like. They didn't even go through all the nightmare that is the perimenopause. <laughs> you might have your late, you might not. I mean, you, your weight's up and down. It's naturally more up. And the mood, the mood, the premenstrual tension, the, the rage. I mean, you think that the seed oils could exacerbate all of those symptoms. So to just to remove them is giving you a fighting chance. Absolutely. I mean, if you remove them, that is the most powerful thing that you can do. And in fact, some people say that they actually start getting their period again, but it's light, it's not miserable. And it's like, it's inconvenient, sure. But it's not like crampy, and they don't have the mood swing. So but that's to my point of the important point about that is you are rejuvenating your body. Like, you know, we were talking about these things accelerate aging. Well, you can reverse aging by getting these things out of your diet. And the sooner you do it, the better. <laughs> well, exactly. Now, that is a wow moment anyway. But I wanted to speak about another wow moment. And that was that when you removed these oils from your diet, you grew. <laughs> yeah. So I removed the seed oils from my diet completely. And I also started eating a more holistic diet. So I got nutrition. I got the basic building blocks. You need that too. And that's what the deep nutrition book describes what that is. And uh, so, yes, I was my whole like adult life. I was struggling to reach the average American height, which is five foot five. And I had only managed to get to five foot four and three quarters. I couldn't quite get there. Um, and I felt subpar somehow. And so then once I had changed my diet, a couple years later, I measured my height and lo and behold, I was almost five foot six. Wow. That's phenomenal. That is <laughs> phenomenal to actually grow vertically and not horizontally as you age is quite something. I mean, bravo. I'm going to start measuring myself. I'd love to be a couple of inches taller. Um, just finally, my final question is, if my listeners are to go into their kitchen right now, what can they declutter from their cupboards to make one step in the right direction to start eating a more ancestral way of life? Give me just a few key items that you might want to look at. Yeah. So the easy thing is, um, you know, chips and crackers and pastries, because these things are all made with the terrifically bad, unhealthy oils, at least in this country. Like, I, I mean, if you're, they're made with butter over there, then you guys are lucky. And no, those are okay. no, they're, they're not. They're not. They're made <laughs> with rapeseed oil. I guarantee it. Yeah. So like those things are just junk food. So that's like immediately get rid of that. And it'll stop you from snacking because you're going to snack when they're around and you're not going to snack as much when they're not around. So like that kind of junk food, junk food is bad because of Cetos. That's, that's what puts the junk in the junk food. It's worse than just empty calories, right? So it's toxic. That's the seed oils. They make junk food junk because of the toxicity. So any kind of junk food. So even candy bars have a lot of it too. And then like, there's a lot of like uh, frozen sides, right? Like, uh, so uh, we got these things called hash browns over here or like hash brown potatoes that are like all little fried chopped up bits of 
potatoes, each one is individually fried. There's a lot of seed oils there with all the surface area, those kind of frozen sides that are very starchy. They've absorbed a lot of the seed oil. Uh, so frozen French fries, uh, that's terrifically bad. And then, you know, it's not in your cupboard, but the takeout food, right? The takeout food is such a huge source of calories for so many people. I can't really do justice to this conversation without mentioning it. Um, you know, the deep fried stuff that you get. And if you can find the odd restaurant out there that actually uses tallow, the traditional stuff, you know, I hear it's coming back, um, then that's fine. You can have that fried food. Okay. So just to summarize, we've got the good fats, which we've got butter, olive oil. You just mentioned beef tallow, I guess, lard. Um, anything else? We have avocado oil, coconut oil, MCT oil. I drink a lot of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they're the ones to sort of stick to. And I've, oh, you said sesame oil as well. That's handy because it's very pungent and really gives a, a nice taste to the food. But there's enough oils there and fats to keep us going. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And peanut oil and then save your bacon grease. Um, ah, yeah. Nice. Bacon is tasty. <laughs> It is tasty. Bacon's back on the menu, guys. Okay, so Kate, can you just please tell my listeners where they can contact you? Because I know you've got a website and you can actually have an appointment with you and basically get your diet back into good health. Where can they reach you? So my website is drkate.com. It's D-R-C-A-T-E.com. And um, subscribe to my newsletter. It's uh, free and you get a lot of really helpful tools that you can download for free when you subscribe. And then you can kind of get a sense of what is it that I recommend before you decide to invest in an appointment. But everybody who does, they're like, oh my God, this was so worth it. I can't believe I didn't do this 20 years ago. Just to pat myself on the back, which, you know. <laughs> which which you actually really do deserve, by the way. You've <laughs> literally you. <laughs> blown the lid off the big food industry, off big pharma, and you open Open my eyes and you've certainly made my weight loss journey so much easier because I took those oils out my addictive eating went my mood lifted and my biological age dropped dramatically and that has to do with the fact I took some flour oil out of virtually everything as possible and that's down to you and your brave actually brave research because there there's some big fish you've fried seriously in obviously in olive oil or butter not <laughs> in sunflower oil <laughs> Dr. Kate, thank you so much. And anybody, just a quick reminder, you must read her book, Deep Nutrition, which is a fabulous page turner, and The Fat Burn Fix, which is a really, really comprehensive, easy to digest book on real, real nutrition that will heal you and get you out the addictive food cycle. Dr. Kate, thank you so much. It's been an honor. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's been such a pleasure meeting you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hack Your Health. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode and please share it far and wide so everyone else can get healthier. The more people we can educate and empower will lead us to a healthier life. Okay, so we make this show for you and I'd love to get your feedback. So please do review us or DM me on Instagram at Davinia Taylor. This has been an Underground Fan Club production. 